Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. So today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. For those of you that are new and connecting with us, we have been walking slowly through the book of Genesis. And so now we come to the 24th chapter, which is, interestingly enough, the longest chapter in Genesis. So we're scheduled to have the four o'clock game start here pretty soon. So uh, just sit back. We're going to go over. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We're going to get through this. But it is the longest chapter in Genesis. And what we see, the big idea of this passage, I'm going to read a significant portion of it, not the whole thing, but I'm going to read a significant portion of it now to get you the idea of what this is all about, is I just want you to think about this. So Abraham and Sarah, God came to them, chose them out of the world to be his people. And in that, he gives them promises. He gives them promises that he will bless them, that he will be their God, and they will be his people, that he's going to give them land, that he's going to give them uh, 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 generations of people after him, Uh, and that through this people who will dwell in this land, who have been chosen and belong to God, Through this people, God is going to bless the whole world. And so where we are now is uh, in Genesis chapter 23, we've seen the matriarch of this couple. A woman named Sarah has passed away. And and so now uh, uh, we, we are entering into the phase of Genesis where Abraham and Sarah's life is winding down. As a matter of fact, we're going to read Abraham's last recorded words today. And spoiler alert, he passes away next chapter. Um, So so we are coming to the close of the foundational patriarchs of Abraham and Sarah and, and matriarch and looking at going, Okay, so what's next? Where's it going to go? Uh, How is God going to continue to move this forward? And if you remember, God gave Abraham and Sarah a promised son named Isaac. And Isaac is the one that God says, I'm going to pass all the promises and everything I've given to you, Abraham, I'm going to pass to your son, Isaac. And so now we're going to pick up this story of what happens as Abraham is about ready to pass away, and now the, the promise and, the, and redemptive history is beginning to take a step forward. So let's read out of Genesis 24. I'm going to read the first 28 verses for us today. This is the word of God. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. 
Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels, camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom, he, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. This is the word of God. One of the reasons why we want to take time to read the text, why we read a portion of scripture uh, at, uh, at the earlier part of our service, just to hear from it, and why we take time to read it like a long passage like this now, is because, uh, you know, we want to learn and know the content of the Bible. 
I was reading something recently that there has been some studies done in the last four to five years from the Barna Group, Lifeway Research, and I believe it's called the Bible Literacy Project, although please don't quote me on that, that Bible literacy in America is woefully short. Something like I read eight, I think my stat is right, 8% of those who regularly attend church, which by the way, regular church attendance, according to this study, was once a month. 8% read the Bible on a daily basis. And so we don't know the content of the scriptures. And so we don't know how to navigate life that is indoctrinating us everywhere we go about who we are, how we should think, what should be fun, what shouldn't be fun, what's boring, what's truth. How do we process life and hardship and suffering? How do we know the language of lament when things happen? If we never read the scriptures, I promise you, you are being indoctrinated by something. I'm not, a, I'm not an anti-fan of the word indoctrination. You need to know that because it means instilling teaching. That's all it means. And we're all being taught something. We are all being indoctrinated into something. The question is, is what we're being indoctrinated with true? Because if it's true, then we should all want to know its teaching. We should all want to know what it says. And so we, me and you, I pray we want to have this doctrine of God's word in us. And so part of knowing that is just knowing the stories of the Bible. And this is a powerful one. Of God, Here's the short story of what happens in 67 verses. God brings a wife to Abraham's son, Isaac. And that is really important. Because you remember, the matriarch for Abraham, the first matriarch, is gone. She has passed away. The original patriarch, Abraham, you know how you read in the scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Abraham is passing away, but yet God's work is not passing away. God's work is not done. God's work does not depend on Abraham and Sarah to live forever. It depends on something and someone else who lives forever, and that is God. That is the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth. And so God has already brought so many promises into Abraham and Sarah's life. He has begun to move redemptive history forward. More on that in a little bit. But, but one of the primary ways that he's done that is by giving them their son Isaac. And now Isaac is living in a land filled with non-God worshipers. And what we see right off the bat here in Genesis that I want us to consider, I want to give us one, two, three, four, five observations, and then three things we can take away from this. And the first observation that I hope we see is Abraham's conviction and concern, even unto his death. What we see is, number one, Abraham is entirely convinced and filled with conviction about who God is. Look at what he says right at the beginning when he addresses his servant, the oldest of his household, as he's telling him, hey, I want you to swear an oath to me. 
right? Now, here's the deal. Don't get weirded out about the put the hand under the thigh thing. Like, I'll be honest. There's a lot of speculation of what that means, but uh, like, like why it, an oath was taken that way. We're going to see it again later in the text. There are even some cultures today that kind of do a form of this. But in a sense, here's what it is. It's a really important oath. Like this is a very important, solemn oath that Abraham is looking at his servant and saying, this is not a small thing. This is not a little thing. This is not something I don't care that much about. I want you to pledge to me with your life, with everything on the line, that you will accomplish this. This is a really big deal. But look at how he says it. He says I, that... Uh, I want to make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. Then he goes on later and he goes, you know, the, you know, when the servant is like, listen, what if she doesn't want to come with me? Uh, am I am I still bound to this oath? If she doesn't come with me, do you want me to take your son back to your homeland that God called you out of? And you see this great conviction in Abraham, that number one, he knows that the God he worships is not one God among many. It is the God who has made the heavens and the earth. And as we talked about all the, those months ago about what that means, that God's our creator, that is the foundation of our doctrine. It means he's the owner of all things. It means he is the brilliance behind it all. He is the upholder of it all. He is a God that none can be compared Two, he is worth everything because he is everything and he has made everything. And every other God is false but this one. And he is deeply convinced into who his God is. Number two, he is convinced that God will do exactly what he promised him. He said, listen, the, the, the God who said, leave your homeland is the very same God that will bring a wife to Isaac. So don't take him back to, his, to, to the homeland. We'll get to that. Don't, don't even tempt Isaac to not stay in the land that God had promised because this God who promised this land is faithful and he will be faithful to every last detail of this promise. But number three, notice his care for his son Isaac at the same time. Filled from this deep conviction is this real care of a father for a son to have a wife. But he is not wanting his son to intermarry with a wicked people. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 verse 25, we see that Canaan was one of the sons of Noah who was a wicked son that Noah cursed. And what we see throughout the scriptures is the Canaanites are a wicked people that are destined for destruction. They do not want God. They hate God. They revel in their hatred of him. And Abraham is living smack dab in the middle of them. And even though some of his interaction with them is a little peaceful, he knows I am in the midst of wickedness. And I do not want my son to engage in a marital relationship that will take who he is before the Lord and marry that with wickedness and something deemed for destruction. And he says, no, 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 I, he cannot marry a Canaanite woman. As best as we know, Isaac is about 40 years old at the time of this passage. Normal time of being married is 30 at this time. And so you can imagine, like, think of the patience 
of Abraham and Isaac to not just willy-nilly go out and get married because he's lonely. Because holiness was more important than even his not feeling lonely or needing to be married or wanting to put things in their own hand. Oh, is there a lesson in that for us? Do you know how many people I've seen in 22 years of ministry that have train wrecked their life because they've just attached themselves to someone? One of the first things I ask in a marriage, pre-marriage counseling is, do you think you can change this person? Because <laughs> I promise you, if you won't marry them exactly how they are, uh, don't think you're going to change them. As a matter of fact, they are probably going to change you. And Abraham is like, I do not want him to be tempted to abandon God and to live a wicked life. I do not want him to, you know, to go down this road where all of a sudden his holiness becomes compromised. His worship of God becomes something that now he has to share with someone who does not worship this same God. Which, by the way, as you read a little further in the Old Testament, they, the Israelites do that and it doesn't work out very well. But what he's also not wanting Isaac to do is to leave the land that was promised. So he would not be tempted to stay out of the promised land. No, no, this is the land God called us to. This is the land God had promised to us. This is the land that we are supposed to stay in. We are not to go back there. God will provide a wife. But then what we also see on the heels of that is the servant's obedience. Oh, there's a beautiful picture here of the servant. And really, he's one of the main characters in this whole passage. We see that, that the servant did exactly what Abraham told him to do. Think about this. We, we don't really know who this servant is. Something, it could be a guy named Eliezer, who is mentioned earlier in the passage, but I've even read some that are like, well, Eliezer is probably really old himself at this point, so we don't know if he could make this journey, because the journey from where they were up to Nahor was f over 500 miles. It would have taken over three weeks for the average journeyer to get there with 10 camels and all of the gifts for the bride price with him. Like, there's a lot going on here, but nonetheless, whoever the servant was, was a trusted servant that willingly took the oath seriously and went and did exactly what Abraham wanted him to do. He did not cut corners. He did not try to, 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 to make this easier on himself. He was always honoring to Abraham. If you read in the text that, that, that I didn't read, uh, starting in verse 29, you see that, that uh, this servant has a conversation with Rebekah's brother named Laban. And the reason why it's in there, it's just, he just retells what happened. It's almost a verbatim retelling of what we read in the first 28 verses. And you see how honoring he is to Abraham. How, even in his prayers, he's honoring, God, will you be faithful to my master, Abraham? God, you know, and, and so we, what we always see is, is in his obedience, though, not only did he honor Abraham doing exactly what he said at great cost to go get a bride for his son, we also see that he lived dependent on the Lord as he went. He pulls up to the spring after three and a half weeks of traveling. He gets his camels off to the side and he knows, I hope I'm in the right place. I don't know who this is. I know what I'm called here to do. And he prays, oh, God, please, 
this is my paraphrase, bring me to the right woman. Bring me to the right woman. And you remember Abraham actually told the servant that an angel will go before you. An angel will go to before you and prepare your way. God walks before his people. He prepares the way to ensure that all of his promises will come to pass. And this servant knew, I don't want to do anything that is veering off to the left or to the right from that. But God, I'm dependent on you. I want to honor my master. I'm going to do this to get a bride for the promised son. And so God, you got to do it and just help me see it. Help me see it. And he found the bride and he brings her back. He didn't harm her. He cared for her. He brought her. We can read at the very end of 24. We'll we'll read this in a minute, but starting in verse 62, how how he brings Rebekah back and he brings her to Isaac and Isaac takes her in to be married. So we see Abraham's conviction and concern. We see the servant's obedience, but I also think it's important we look at Rebekah's posture. Here is this young woman, this beautiful young woman who comes, who is already on her way out as as the servant is praying. We'll get more on that in a minute. But but what we see with Rebecca, oh, there's so much to talk about. But look how hospitable she was. She comes with her water jar. And she, she takes it down and cares for this servant's thirst. And then she goes a final, a, a, an even more remarkable step by saying, I'll water all of your camels, which, I, listen, I don't know a lot about livestock, but I know that just watering is not a super easy task. Is that, like, it's not an eight-second task during a commercial break, right? So scholars, when they were talking about what this would have entailed for Rebecca to water 10 camels with the jar she had, would have taken her about an hour and a half of repeatedly taking her jar, filling it up from the well, carrying it back, dumping it in the box, letting the camel drink, bringing it back, and yet here she is doing that. For an hour and a half to two hours, she hospitably and sacrificially and joyfully says, I'll care for you. I'll care for your camels too. She was a joyful servant in her hospitality. Anybody had, anybody felt hospitable, but you're kind of ticked that you're being hospitable? (laughs) We've never been there. It's never happened in my life. But what we see in that is she's hospitable and joyful as she serves. But then what we also see is she was willing to submit to God's leading. Isn't it interesting that God calls Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 12, Leave your home, leave your family, and go to the place that I will show you. And in a very similar way, Rebecca is called to do the very same thing. Leave your family, leave the protection of your household, and I want you to go to this land you've never been to go marry a guy you've never met. And she's willing to go. As a matter of fact, after the, uh, you know, it's agreed that she's going to go because uh, the servant tells the brother of, of Rebecca, this is starting in verse 29 as he's telling the story, because it seems as if Rebecca's dad has passed away. He's either passed away or he's gone. And Laban has stepped in 
as kind of the, 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 the patriarch and protector of the family. And so as the servant is telling her brother, like, hey, this is, this is who my master is. God has blessed him. He is wealthy. He has done all of these things. God has given him a son. All these promises and inheritance are going to him. And the Lord, you know, and I've been sent here to find a bride for him. And this is how the Lord has answered the prayer. This is how the Lord has specifically brought me to Rebecca. This is all these things. And it says that Laban looked at him and said, Essentially, I can't refute that. I can't speak to you good or evil, which means I got nothing to say. It definitely seems as if the Lord has brought this together. And this is a guy that's even a pagan. He's not even a believer. But the work of God is so evident that they're like, you can take her. And then when it comes to the day where they're like, all right, let's go home. You know, I'm going to take her now. The mom and the brother are like, can she stay another 10 days? Did you ever feel like that when we were going to leave on vacation? Like, I'm going to take Tara home. And you're like, can she just stay another two days? Right? No, I'm going to take her back into New York, a thousand miles away. So then this family is like, no, I know you're going to take her home. I know the Lord has brought you to her, just whatever. But, but can she just stay 10 more days? And the servant's like, please don't delay me. And they're like, well, let's ask Rebecca. And Rebecca goes, let's go. Let's go right now. And she goes, leaving all she knew, willing to marry Isaac. Four, Isaac's, and the fourth observation that I want us to see is Isaac's comfort. So what we read, if you look at verse, starting in verse 62 to the end of the chapter. So Rebecca's on her way with her nurse. And in verse 62, it says, Now Isaac had returned from Be'er Lehoi Roi and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward the evening, and he lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who's that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The loss of Sarah, Isaac's mother, was evidently a great loss for Isaac, as it would be when you lose a mom. But Isaac found a deep love with the bride that God brings and establishes now a new matriarch and a new patriarch that are going to carry the promise of God forward. And it is going to be continued to be fulfilled now in them. Isaac is no longer alone, but has a wife to share life with and to carry on God's work in the world. Because you remember, God promised that he would not only give more, that he would give the whole land, but that he would also give a, a, as many descendants as the stars of the sky. The stage is set again. Because you remember, as great as Abraham and Sarah are to this promise, they are not the fulfillers of the promise. They are receivers of the promise, meant to live in faithfulness. And now it's being passed to Isaac and Rebekah, who will be receivers of the promise, who are to walk in that promise as God continually unfolds his plan to save the world. Which leads to the final observation, and that's God's faithfulness. 
God's faithfulness. Do not miss how verse 1 starts. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. God was faithful to Abraham from his calling to his death. He gave him land. He gave him possessions. He blessed him. He protected him. He was faithful when Abraham was not. And he even gave him the promised son on whom it is all hinged. And he's even faithful to deliver a wife for his son. God brought blessing to Abraham. God delivered a wife that, that, that Abraham desired. And God was faithful to Isaac. This is a point that I cannot let go of. That, that it, you know, God is ultimately faithful to Isaac because of his promise to Abraham. In other words, God's faithful promise to Isaac is rooted in something outside of Isaac. God himself called Abraham to be the, pro to, to be the foundation of everything else to come. And all of that faithfulness is because God established a promise here. And then it gets passed to Isaac. And then it gets passed to Jacob. Which means that, 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 that think of the security of that. It's not, Abraham, I'm going to give you a promise. And if your son can measure up, then maybe I'll, I'll, I'll promise him too. No, it's I've given this a promise and it, I will be faithful to it to my chosen generation. God's hand is seen throughout this entire chapter. The angel of the Lord guided the servant. God moved through the prayers of the servant even before he prayed them. I love how it says, even before the servant finished his prayer of, oh God, lead me to the right woman. It says that before he had finished speaking... Rebecca walks up, which means she had to leave her house before he even got there. God's providence in all of this is so evident that Laban, Rebecca's brother, who's a pagan, can say nothing in protest, but only agree to give Rebecca his sister in marriage. The Lord is referenced close to 30 times throughout this chapter showing he is the one guiding and directing these events for his glory and the advancement of his promise and the good of his people. So what are we to take away from this beyond just knowing it? Which, by the way, like, don't overlook the importance of just knowing what the scriptures say. Even before you know the meaning of them, just know them. I loved it when my boys came to me and said, Dad, I read about Ehud today. I'm like, I'm glad you know that story. You go read it. You'll find out why. But what are we to do with this? I want to leave us with three things, three important thoughts that I pray you wrestle with to apply in your daily life. Number one, rest in God's providence. Providence is God governing guiding, directing, upholding, disposing, working, all things great and small to their intended end. And that intended end is where the world is made new, the heavens and the earth are made new, Christ is seated, you know, uh, that, that all of creation is gathered around the throne of God, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is guiding all history to a fixed point. 
where sin is fully judged, sinners are forever judged, and God's people are forever with him in his place, dwelling under his protection. God moves according to his purposes and his promises for his glory and the good of his people. We must never forget that, church. Even now, as Wes is sitting in a prison cell, God is using that and guiding history forward through a man in a prison cell till one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And I know Wes, and if you could talk to him right now, he would say there's nowhere else I would rather be because this is what God would have for me. And though I am suffering, I know God is faithful. Even though I'm suffering, I know it is not in vain. Even though I don't know ultimately what's going to happen, and yes, I have the fear of the flesh, I know God is guiding history. And in the end, the resurrection tells us sin does not win. God is redeeming a bride for his son, and the son himself pays the bride price. Don't forget the beauty of this, that a father sends a servant to come and bring a bride back for the son so that the promise can continue. And in an even more profound way, God the father sends his own son who is a suffering servant who goes to a land far away from the throne of heaven. Don't, don't miss Philippians 2, that though he is God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he let it go, taking the form of human flesh and taking the lowest form of a servant and die on a cross so that his bride would be redeemed. This is ultimately a picture that points to the ultimate picture of Christ redeeming a bride and the Father graciously giving her to him. The bride is the church. It's us. And there will be a day when we will be brought to our bridegroom. And there will be great rejoicing in that day. I love what John Calvin says about providence. He says, ignorance of providence is the greatest of all miseries, and the knowledge of it is the highest happiness. Why? Because we don't have to freak out when things don't go our way. We don't have to freak out if an election doesn't go our way. We don't have to freak out if our body of flesh is wasting away because we know that God is the maker of heaven and earth and he is the bringer of salvation. He is the author of it. He is the sustainer of it. And he is the finisher of it. And he stands victorious and is rolling back the the curse of sin and the bride of Christ will be delivered to the son in full, holy and blameless without a single fault and will dwell in the land of everlasting delights for all eternity. And the present suffering we endure now does not even compare to the eternal weight of glory that's waiting for us. Rest in God's providence. I got to go. Two, learn from the servant's obedience. And three, share Abraham's concern and conviction. Amen. <laughs> 
Yeah, you're excited. I'll just be quick. Full obedience, which came from his total devotion to his master. Can I challenge you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to follow in those same steps and bring full obedience to Jesus? We lose this in the gospel message a lot, that it's just about get, you know, if you have faith and walked an aisle, you're good. You don't got to live. No, no. We are to be devoted to our master and be dependent on him to lead and guide us. And finally, share Abraham's conviction and concern. Abraham, though not perfect, remained faithful to the Lord until the end. Guys, I'm 22 years in ministry. The amount of people that I've seen that have started in ministry with me that have fallen out because of moral failure, burnout, and losing their faith is shocking to me. Remain firm. The calling and promise of God defined everything about his life, and he was convinced that God would be faithful to fulfill it all. Are you that convinced? Abraham desired to intentionally lead his son to obey and trust in the Lord. He knew God was the one who would accomplish all he promised. However, Abraham wanted to play his part in passing this on to his son. Children, do, or parents, do not, and grandparents, do not sublet out your children's discipleship. Do not sublet out the desire and holding firm that your children do not train wreck their life by engaging in a relationship that is to their harm, not their good. Teach your children the three most important decisions they will ever make in their life are who they will worship, who they will marry, and what community they will attach themselves to. Those three things define everything about how we live. Call them to holiness. Hold them to holiness and righteousness. Guard their hearts and help them see that righteousness is better than the wickedness of the world, no matter how flashy it may seem. And then pray. Pray with your whole heart that God would capture their whole heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son. And God, I pray just so thankful for the promise that you've given to us and the God that you are behind that promise. You are faithful to every one of your words. You are, you are the God that we were made for. And so, Father, help us to rest in your providence. Help us to live a life of joyful, devoted obedience to you. Because when we walk in obedience to you, God, that's the path of life that we are all searching for anyway. And help us to remain firm to the end. Help us to be filled with conviction that you are this God and to have great concern for our children and grandchildren and the world around us. And all along the way, Father, may we trust that you will conclude history to the place that you intended it to be concluded. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.